And then one of my babies is the curbside clinic. Hello, I'm Rachel Deere, host of today's program, COVID-19, Keeping Up with a Moving Target. This is the July 24th update of DKB Med Radio's Coronavirus Educational Series. Thank you for joining us. We've recently switched platforms from YouTube to On24 to provide our learners with a more interactive platform. For an optimal viewing experience, we recommend expanding your browser window while viewing this presentation. You can expand the media player, which the video plays from, or the slides window to suit your preferences. Please note, polling questions will appear in the slides window. Questions will appear shortly, as well as the end. Please click the circle that corresponds to your answer choice and click the submit button. This activity is jointly provided by the Postgraduate Institute for Medicine, DKB Med, and the Institute for Johns Hopkins Nursing. Today's program is accredited for ANCC and AAPA credit, as well as AMA, PRA Category 1 credits. Please visit our website for complete CE information. To attest for credit, please visit covid19.dkbmed.com. There, you will also find all of our previous COVID-19 programs and have access to other free CE programs on a wide range of topics. The slides for today's webinar can be found in the resource list window and as a green icon in the bottom menu. Today's learning objectives are discuss the impact of COVID-19 on the care of oncology patients and their caregivers, and describe innovative strategies to care for oncology patients during a pandemic. This activity is supported by an educational grant from Pfizer Incorporated and in-kind by DKB Med. All activity content and materials have been developed solely by the activity directors, planning committee members, and faculty presenters, and are free of influence from Pfizer. With us today, we have Michaela Olson, an oncology clinical nurse specialist at the Sydney Kimmel Comprehensive Care Center at the Johns Hopkins Hospital. She will be discussing the impact of COVID-19 on the care of oncology patients and their caregivers. Michaela, thanks for your time. Thank you. Today, we're gonna to talk about delivering cancer care during a pandemic. I am a clinical nurse specialist in the Cancer Center at Johns Hopkins and have served as the operations chief for our COVID command center since March. So I've had a lot of experience moving very quickly and putting together innovative strategies for caring for cancer patients during this pandemic. As a note, I was an army nurse early on in my career, which I think has been helpful to me to use some of those skills that I learned in sort of moving quickly and responding to something of this nature. So we're gonna talk about a little bit about how this pandemic has affected cancer care. And what we see and what we worry about now is that since the onset of the pandemic, elective medical procedures, including cancer screening, were put on hold. So we saw as much as a 94% reduction in screening for cervical and breast cancer and more than an 86% in one study reduction in screening for colorectal cancer. And so we know that with the decrease in screening that's going to result in uh, what we're worried about is an, an increase in cancer cases at some point that could be overwhelming. We also know that the treatment of patients with existing cancer has been affected. Cancer patients should continue to receive their treatment 
we know, unfortunately, that many of the symptoms and toxicities of cancer and cancer treatment often resemble COVID-19 symptoms. So the cancer facilities across the U.S. have to have the ability to rule out COVID while not missing important symptoms or toxicities of, of cancer or cancer treatment, such as examples I like to include are we don't want to miss a patient that has febrile neutropenia and, and then goes into septic shock because we were too concerned about the exposure of COVID from that patient. And we also don't want to miss like an immune toxicity related to, for instance, pneumonitis that resembles symptoms that COVID can have like a shortness of breath and pulmonary symptoms. So there are a lot of intricate details that have to be attended to so that we can continue to provide cancer care while still managing COVID and screening for COVID and keeping our healthcare facilities, staff, and other patients and caregivers safe. And we know cancer care is best delivered in the oncology center with staff members who know the patient's diagnosis and treatment plan intricately. And we know that cancer patients I heard it many, many times in the beginning of this pandemic, reported a fear of coming to our facilities. They didn't want to be put at risk. They have been taught since the beginning of their diagnosis the importance of hand hygiene and, and keeping themselves safe from infection. And the last thing they wanted to do was come back to our facilities. So there was a lot of fear. And many patients delayed their care or did not seek medical attention. And we know that that can increase the risk of morbidity and, and mortality. And we know that um, this can result in more advanced stage diseases uh, at diagnosis. And we know that modeling has been done to look at subsequent impact of diagnostic delays on cancer survival. And it is predicted that cancer survival can be impacted by this. We know that hospitals and outpatient facilities, including my facility, we've had to go through some very stringent processes to be able to bring patients back in for their care, including lots of infection control practices and, and audits, et cetera. So we need to do education with our patients and caregivers that these facilities are safe to come into and that they should not delay their care or screening for cancer. Another focus of our commitment to care delivery during this time is to protect not only our patients, but our staff. So we, we need to keep our facilities open and prevent outbreaks of COVID within our uh, employees. So minimizing the risk of COVID-19 exposure to all has been a very important focus of our teams. Preventing infection and refocusing the patient on the important education that we already have done with them from the onset of their cancer diagnosis and really helping to teach the caregivers. This has been really challenging and difficult as we and other cancer centers across the country implemented no visitation and increased the number of televisits and increased the number of patients that were coming into the facility alone without caregiver support. So that's been a big burden on both the patient and caregiver, but also our cancer centers to deliver that care without having the caregivers there to help. We've done a lot of creative things with televisits and um, video visits and FaceTime with our caregivers so that they can still be present during the visit, although not physically. We've developed algorithms to treat patients who present with symptoms of COVID-19. 
And I'll share with you a couple examples of that, but everything from what happens when they enter the door to come to an appointment to what happens if they come to our facility and present with COVID symptoms, where do we take them? How do we deliver their care quickly? Again, um, moving them to a place where we can safely rule out the COVID, but also not forget that they could be presenting with a life-threatening cancer or cancer treatment-related toxicity or problem. And then one of my concerns as uh, an editor of the Oncology Nursing Society Safe Handling Guidelines is prevention of hazardous drug exposure for staff. When the pandemic first started, we were having some very difficult discussions about running out of PPE. And although I was afraid, obviously, of COVID exposure, I was also afraid for the staff who administer many of these chemotherapy drugs that are human carcinogens, how would we continue to protect our pregnant staff or our staff that were breastfeeding or our staff that were administering these hazardous drugs from the harms? So we had to do a lot of adjusting to limited supplies. And this is a whole discussion in itself, but we needed to very quickly learn from what was happening in the New York region and ensure that we were preserving our PPE. So the hospital came up with fanny packs for all staff that included hand gel and masks and brown paper bags to store the masks in and face shields so that every staff member had their own kit and could help with cleaning and preserving of their supplies to prevent wastage of supplies. We quickly came up with face shields to cover the surgical masks so that they could be preserved and kept clean and that we could protect the eyes. We had breweries in the area making hand gel as many hospitals did, which was fabulous. Cloth gowns and face shields made from an automobile company that were very helpful for our facility. And then the use of commando hooks to reuse gowns in non-infectious areas. And then cloth gowns for use in non-hazardous drug areas so that we could preserve our plastic coated gowns for hazardous drug exposure. And then we had to really do a careful look at our isolation practices for VRA and MRSA to make sure that we had enough PPE to take care of our COVID positive patients and we didn't overuse PPE in these other less infectious organisms. And so ONS actually, Oncology Nursing Society came out with some guidelines for to get through this pandemic. They're not in line with our normal very strict guidelines, but we had to have a reality-based response to the PPE shortage. So we did, for the first time ever, allow the reuse of a, of a poly-coated gown by hanging it on a hook in between patients, um, which was a strategy to, to prevent um, running out completely and having no gown. And then coordinating activities with one nurse doing the takedowns and then using gloves only and no gown for the lower hazardous risk drugs. So we had to create some strategies and guidelines to help so that we would not run out of PPE. And then other recommendations included the reuse of masks and eye protection and single gloves versus double gloves. And a lot of that was extremely helpful during the pandemic to, I think that's one of the reasons why we did not run out of PPE as things got worse, we were able to continue to clean and reuse and limit the waste of our PPE, which was very important. If we don't have enough staff 
that are well to care for the cancer patients, then the redeployment of other nurses from the rest of the hospital to oncology would be very challenging because of the lack of knowledge around cancer care delivery. There were innovative ways that we started to deliver care and we did this very quickly. We first listened to our patients and I think that the resounding thing that patients said was, we don't wanna come there. We're afraid to come to your facility. Um, and our nurses called the patients the night before to prepare them for their appointment and to do assessments with them. And that was going on pre-COVID and all they kept hearing was, I'm afraid to come. So we had a lot of people that didn't want to come that were delaying their injections, their hormonal injections or delaying their therapy. And so we had to start thinking of new and safer ways to deliver care. We quickly jumped on the bandwagon like most centers did and started doing a, a very large proportion of our visits, uh, provider visits as televisits. And that went really well. We had to start thinking outside the box about the care delivery for actual treatments. We knew that televisits could be done for those provider visits, but how were we gonna actually deliver medications and therapy to, to patients in this time? So we developed some programs that I'll share with you they are definitely worthy of a, of a bigger and longer discussion about how we implemented them, but I can just share briefly with you what we did and some algorithms for care delivery. Algorithms were extremely important because in the beginning it was very chaotic and everybody was starving for some sort of an algorithm that they could look at for how to um, move forward in different situations. So I think that's one of the things I did for the first couple months was just develop multiple algorithms. We quickly realized that we could take seven of our negative pressure rooms in oncology and use them to rule out COVID in oncology patients. And I would say the majority of our patients screened negative, which was great because we were able to then move them out of the negative pressure room back into a regular oncology room and those patients never had to go to the emergency room or to a biocontainment unit. The small percentage of patients that ended up being positive for COVID would be transported by our safety officers over to an inpatient biocontainment unit in the main hospital where they were cared for. And if they needed their cancer therapy, then our oncology clinical nurse specialist team went over to the main hospital to administer their cancer treatment to them. We, um, like many places, uh, unfortunately, oncology research came to a screeching halt and we had a lot of research staff that needed to work. And so rather than furloughing a lot of them, they were redeployed to the bedside. Some of them actually re-greased their wheels and, and came and cared for patients in our infusion areas. Some of them served as safety officers and transport safety officers. And many of them uh, served as screeners at our entrances to our cancer centers to make sure that we had a good perimeter in terms of not letting COVID positive patients in and visitors in that might put our buildings and our staff and other patients at risk. So that was very helpful to have our teams, our research teams come to the hospital side and help out. We did, as I said, many of our visits as televisits for providers and then really enforced the no visitation policy unless someone had a disability that where they really needed their caregiver and used bedside tablets and virtual teaching. As I said, we do pre-screening by calling patients the night before and we do front door screening. So we've really been able to maintain the integrity of our buildings and 
had very few contact staff member to staff member or patient to staff member transmissions of COVID, very, very few. And I do believe it's because we tightened everything up very quickly early on. And then Zoom rounds for inpatient units. So all the teams do Zoom rounds and the nurse goes on Zoom with the attending and the dietitian and the pharmacist and the physical therapist and everybody rounds on the patient via Zoom and then one physician and the nurse go in the room so that we can maintain physical distancing. We were already doing COVID drive-through testing tents um, at all of our facilities throughout our health system. That got stood up very, very quickly. So we could, if we found someone positive for symptoms at the door, we could have them go back out to their car, put a t an order in for them and have them go through the testing tent. If they were too sick to do that, we quickly stood up a second, we already have an oncology urgent care center, but we stood up a second biocontainment urgent care center with 11 beds that's adjacent to our regular urgent care center so that if anybody was suspicious for COVID but was too sick to go home, instead of sending them to the ED, we could put them right over into our urgent care biocontainment unit and flock them, test them for COVID and administer the fluids or antibiotics or whatever care they needed in the urgent care. And about 80 or 85% of those patients were able to go home at night if they were COVID negative, if they were COVID positive and they were well enough to go home and quarantine, they did, or some of them had to be admitted to the main hospital as a COVID positive patient that needed continued care. We redeployed nurses, fellows, nurse practitioners, and even our oncology attendings to staff this new unit. And then one of my babies is the curbside clinic. That was pretty exciting to think about how could we continue to give patients their care, but not have to have them come into the building. And patients really, really loved this concept that they could get their injection, their chemotherapy injection, their hormonal injection, their growth factor injection, their blood draw, their port access right at the curb while staying in their car. We had a celebration recently with some apple cider for um, treating over 500 patients in, in our two curbside clinics. This has been something that we've spoken about in a number of forums. Um, other places want to model after this. Hugely successful and staffed by RNs and clinical technicians. And all aspects of care for these patients are done as the same as they would be in an infusion space, but at the curbside. Yeah, patients have really loved it and our volumes are growing. And we, we do believe that this is one of those initiatives that the patients won't let us give up. So then in addition, um, lots of algorithms, as I said before, were developed to guide care. Testing algorithms, we had an algorithm for what to do with COVID-19 symptom patients um, that were on immunotherapy. And if they became COVID-19 positive, how would we treat them in the presence of pneumonitis? We're worried about the steroids and the worsening of COVID-19. We worked on algorithms for screen positive patients, um, a pathway to re-entry of oncology care for a COVID positive patient. So once they were diagnosed with COVID and they, and for instance, they still needed to get their cancer therapy, even though they were diagnosed with COVID uh, because the cancer was progressing, we needed a way to be able to deliver that care. So those patients can come into our urgent care bio unit to receive ongoing care.
And we have quite a few examples of patients that, although they're more than a month out, continue to test positive for COVID. And so we continue to bring them into our urgent care bio to deliver their cancer therapy for them and make that kind of a seamless process. And then we have an algorithm for COVID-19 pre-screening for our bone marrow transplant donors and recipients, which has been very helpful for continuing to allow for transplantation during COVID-19. The treatment of the COVID-19 patients, cancer patients, um, we have algorithms to be able to do that inpatient or in the ambulatory setting, depending on their regimen and their level of illness. We have ongoing cancer treatment with chemotherapy or immunotherapy that can occur for these patients. And as I said, in our urgent care center or in an inpatient COVID positive unit, we've been participating in plasma infusion trials for patients and we've developed a retesting algorithm for our cancer patients. So lots of work to ensure that these patients stay in our care. And I, it's very exciting for me to say that very few of our cancer patients actually had to leave the cancer center to get their care we set up these programs to be able to embrace them and keep them in the environment where they were familiar, uh, but also keep our staff and other patients safe during this time period. So that's just a, a very brief overview of some of the initiatives that we've put into place and some of the things that we've been worried about and focusing on during this time. So I hope that uh, that was helpful. And this is just one of my favorite pictures from this whole time period of the jets flying over Johns Hopkins Dome and then the testing tent right up, right down there at the bottom. So thank you very much. Thanks again, Michaela. We'll move on to the Q&A portion. Okay. Is it reasonable to delay treatment or increase intervals between treatments for people with lower risk cancer? That's kind of a complex question. There's a lot of variability between cancer types and what we know about delaying cancer therapy depend on the disease, but ultimately our goal was not to delay therapy for anyone. I do know that there were some patients getting hormonal injections where we were able to do a different dosing or a different regimen to be able to extend their intervals a little bit. But in general, we really were committed to giving our patients their therapy on time and to making sure that they got the, the full doses that they were supposed to get to increase the efficacy of their cancer treatment. And the next question is, can some patients switch to oral therapies from parenteral therapies? That again is a very specific question that is very individual depending on the patient and their cancer type. I do know of some instances where we were able to switch from a parenteral to an oral therapy because it was appropriate for that patient's cancer and that patient stage, et cetera, and the attending oncologist and the patient make those decisions together in terms of what's the best outcome for the patient. But in general, we weren't doing a lot of switching from oral to parenteral in, in a large majority of patients, but it may have worked for uh, a subset of patients. Should routine monitoring be suspended in areas of high COVID activity? You don't want to compromise care. You don't want to increase the morbidity or mortality in your patients, and you don't want to not monitor and then have the patient come in very, very, very sick. I think we were lucky because we have a very robust nursing telephone triage team. They really got slammed during this whole thing because 
not only were patients calling in for their normal side effects and toxicities, but now they were calling in asking lots and lots of questions about COVID and COVID side effects that they were concerned that they might have versus their cancer side effects. But our triage nurses did an excellent job of monitoring patients and assessing problems and bringing them into the right area in our care delivery system to, to rule out COVID or treat their symptoms. And, and I think they were kind of a lifeline for the patient. So I wouldn't recommend not doing the, the same monitoring that we were doing before because we, we wouldn't want patients to have adverse outcomes. Thanks so much, Michaela. Thank you for having me. As a reminder, to claim credit, please complete the evaluation at covid19.dkbmed.com and select today's activity. You'll receive your certificate immediately after. Any questions or issues, feel free to email us at the address listed. To submit questions, please send them to qa at dkbmed.com. That's Q's in question, A is an answer, at dkbmed.com. Don't forget to access our resource center at covid19.dkbmed.com. You'll find a range of information, including the latest COVID-19 data and statistics, medical society guidelines, and resources in Spanish. Again, thanks for joining us, and thank you for your dedication to your patients with COVID-19.